Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid. Thursday morning, uh, the 30th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11 a.m. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. On the 23rd of June 2016, people in the United Kingdom voted to leave the European Union. Since then, there has been two general elections and an impasse over how to deliver Brexit. Yesterday, MPs agreed to hold another general election, the fourth time people will be asked to vote in the last five years. That vote on the 12th of December may resolve many issues. It may not, and people may be asked to vote again, perhaps in yet another election or another referendum. In Northern Ireland, some believe uh, the Brexit debacle will result in a border poll. A lucid talk poll published in the Sunday Times this week found that two out of three people in Northern Ireland believe that Ireland will be reunited. Mark Daly is a Fianna Fáil senator and he's on the line and a very good morning to you Senator Daly and thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme once again to talk about the prospect of a, a border poll and you've been looking at how that may come about. Uh, is it possible that a, an opinion poll such as the one that was published in the paper this weekend could result in an actual referendum? Yeah I mean uh, I, I suppose the lesson of Brexit really is that you don't hold a referendum without the proper preparation and planning and engagement with all sides and the research that I undertook uh, on how a referendum would be called by the Secretary of State looked at a court case which was taken by a unionist uh, and a victim's rights campaigner uh, to try and force the Secretary of State to come up with a policy on how the Secretary of State would determine that the majority of people are in favour. And what we discovered in the research and analysis of the documents submitted by the Secretary of State was that not only does the Secretary of State uh, have the power and only mm. only the Secretary of State can call the referendum on the United Ireland. That's under the Good Northern Friday Ireland. Agreement. It's the Northern Secretary who decides that the time is right or not to hold a referendum. Absolutely. But mm. what we also discovered in the documents submitted by the Secretary of State was that the Secretary of State alone decides who gets to vote in that referendum, uh, which, of course, is of grave concern because deciding who gets to vote decides the outcome. And we see that clearly in the Scottish independence referendum mm. Um, where the voter pool and those allowed to vote was enlarged from uh, what normally happens in the UK is that it's 18-year-olds and older, uh, British citizens, Commonwealth citizens and Irish citizens are actually allowed to vote in referendums normally. So that would have happened in the Brexit referendum. But in the Scottish independence referendum, that included 16-year-olds and EU citizens, uh, along with the other voting pools. Mm. And when they looked at the analysis of the exit polls, it showed 
that while uh, obviously the referendum was lost 45% uh, against independence, 55% for, that the UK citizens born outside of Scotland voted against Scottish independence by 74%, but those who were born in Scotland voted 49-51. Mm. So that'll tell you how important it is to decide who's allowed to vote. EU citizens, by the way, voted against Scottish independence by 57%. Okay. So you can see how different mm. categories mm. can decide the outcome. But of course, Northern Ireland has a tragic and long history of denying people the right to vote. And we cannot afford for this referendum to be another chapter in that sad story. So what we do need from the Secretary of State is clarity, because the problem here is the Secretary of State has continually said the majority are not in favour, but the Secretary of State has not said who's allowed to vote. So mm. how can you say the majority are not in favour? What, what is the majority? Out? The majority of uh, what cohort of people? But back up a, a little bit, if you would, please, because you say the Northern Secretary uh, is single-handedly uh, charged with the responsibility of deciding whether there will be a referendum or not, or the British government, if you prefer. Uh, but what, uh, based on what? On what criteria? Well, this is it. That's what what came out in the court case was that even election results, and I'll give you the exact mm. quote from the, the, the legal team submission to the court, the Secretary of State's legal team was, she does not accept that she does not consider that an election result alone would be a determining indicator of political opinion in relation to a border poll. So what she's basically saying is even if parties who had who were in favour of the United Ireland got the majority of the votes, she would not, she, she still would not consider an election or she and like you know we're going well as a politician uh, elections are the gauge of public opinion mm. but opinion polls as you've talked mm. about or talking have indicated that in certain circumstances the majority would be in favor but as you and i know opinion polls are wildly unreliable and we need criteria so that people will all understand mm under what circumstances the referendum will be called. But more importantly, we need to know who's going to be allowed to vote in that referendum. Is uh, that a a flaw in the Good Friday Agreement? Was it an oversight not to lay out the criteria? Um, I suppose, you know, there was a lot of, I suppose, wiggle room left Mm. in the Good Friday Agreement to accommodate in getting the deal across the line and, you know, the Secretary of State calling the referendum um, you know, and the vagueness about, uh, you know, when the majority are in favour. Um, all was done, you know, 20 years ago mm. now, um, in order to get the, the deal across the line. But now we're left with the real prospect. And, you know, bear in mind that members of the unionist community, about 60% in a Lord Ashcroft poll, have said that they believe there'll be a United Ireland within 10 years. So it, it is incumbent on everybody in the South, the political system and the government and all departments to prepare for it. And we've spoken on this show about the fact that it wasn't even acknowledged in the government's risk assessment until myself and Deputy Sean Fleming wrote a report for the, the Taoiseach's national risk assessment and said, you, you have mentioned everything in the world, including global warming and cyber security, but you have not mentioned the challenges around a referendum on the United Ireland. And there are challenges, mm. but we must face them or we must address them and address everybody's concerns, the union's people's concerns, but everybody's concerns about what the future would look like for the whole island because, and I, I know I quoted John Bradley before, but I think it's worth quoting again. He was an economist in Queen's University in Belfast and he said, policy neglect seldom goes unpunished. And we don't have a policy on who's going to be allowed to vote in the referendum or how it's called. So that's the first step of policy neglect. And, you know, we can't afford to have policy neglect because we've seen the chaos that has resulted in Britain 
because of Brexit and the lack of preparation in Britain uh, in advance of the referendum. So the referendum should be the the end of the process, not the beginning of the process, as we see from what happened in Britain. So we need to look at the education system, the healthcare system, and how we can improve the lives of all the people on this island uh, with the challenges that lie ahead. Mm. And sense of identity. Uh, I mean, I think there's uh, probably some very tough times ahead uh, for people in Northern Ireland who uh, look on themselves, who perceive themselves as unionists, uh, because it it would seem uh, as though uh, they don't want the union to be divided uh, and uh, that it's quite likely that Boris Johnson will win the next election and divide the union and uh, that Northern Ireland will leave the European Union differently to the rest of the United Kingdom in what many of them will describe as an economic union with the Republic. Uh, And uh, whilst they're uh, allegedly part of the United Kingdom, they will feel betrayed by their own government. Well, I suppose that is one of the the key failings of the DUP strategy and also the strategy by the British government, um, not realising the the importance of keeping the border open and coming up with ideas and solutions. They didn't come up with ideas and solutions. They they just said it would be okay, but they never came up with an actual formal solution. And the issue of identity is very important because what we have to look at there is accommodating unionist identity. And bear in mind, uh, their identity is very linked in with Scotland because a lot of them have uh, direct family connections with Scotland. Uh, so if Scotland votes for independence in a referendum which is being proposed by the Scottish Nationalist Party in 2020, uh, you could see an acceleration around the issue of uh, a referendum in the United Ireland. But again, bear in mind, you know, when we had looked at the choice referendum and, and the equal marriage referendum, mm. it took three years, basically, analysing that from citizens' assemblies, uh, from constitutional conventions, from the debate and the discussion around it, Mm. the white papers, the government committees, you know, the pre-legislative scrutiny, all of that would take about three years. Now, three years in in the challenge that faces us around a referendum on the United Ireland is very short and possibly too short to address all the issues. Because bear in mind, they were issues around, they were debates and discussions around a singular issue. This is the main aim of the state. This affects every branch of government from the constitution all the way to every government department to every citizen. So it would take a long time to address those issues correctly. But but the first mm. issue is who's allowed to vote. Well, of course, but regardless of who's allowed to vote, if the outcome is uh, United Ireland or or reunited Ireland, uh, fundamentally the problem is that you're going to be telling people who believe they are British that they're not British, that they're Irish. No, no, that, I suppose I'd have to disagree with you there. This is about accommodating identity. It's, you know, it's about being respectful of other people's point of view and other people's beliefs. So the Good Friday Agreement is clear that you can be British and Irish, you can be either or. Mm. You can choose whichever identity you wish. And therefore, people who live in Northern Ireland today can get Irish, Irish passports as mm. they can get British passports. So what we have to look at, and I know the flags and the anthems have been discussed before, it's not about giving people new identities, new flags, new anthems. It's about accommodating identity and accommodating the symbols that they hold precious rather than taking them away from them. Because we all know how we react when things are taken away from us without our agreement. But they wouldn't so be need- British. How would they be Pardon? British? How, 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 would they, how, how would somebody living in Ireland be British? 
in the same way as somebody living in London can always remain Irish, or somebody living in America can always remain uh, Irish but, and American. You okay, can be both. Okay, well, you can, you, you can be you British, can but, you're, but, but you're not living in Britain. No, you're not, but you, that you, never stops your identity changing. Your identity is who you are, not where you live. And at the same time, but at the same time, and I... I well, their, I chil- their children will be Irish. No, they can continue under the Good Friday Agreement in the same way as somebody born in Northern Ireland. Uh, but that's Paddy Wackery, Irish. isn't it? You know, not not uh, in any way, shape or form. Is that, but I, 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 I mean, I, you, you don't really think you can sell that argument to unionists who uh, believe that they are British and will want to remain uh, as uh, citizens I- I- in the United Kingdom. That's, I mean, that is the challenge that lies ahead of us. We have to be able to accommodate all the identities, as we do at the moment mm. in, in ways with people who come from Europe and all over the world and can be both Polish and Irish or Lithuanian and Irish or just Lithuanian uh, or just Polish. You know, you can choose the identity you, that you're comfortable with. But the real challenge ahead for us is, Owen Polly made a very interesting point in the Belfast Telegraph when he talked about the challenge that the South needs to understand is mm. that being a unionist, is about paying a full part in the union. And how do you accommodate that? And to be honest, the Irish mm. government haven't engaged with the union's community in a way that is answering those questions and that they have. And yeah. they have been discussing it. Lord Eames, who is the former uh, head of the Church of Ireland, has spoken on the BBC about wanting to know what this new Ireland would look like. And at this moment in time, and I know your radio station reported on Friday, the Taoiseach was saying that now is not the time to make preparations. And I would have to disagree with him because, again, the lesson of Brexit is you need long-term preparation for something as challenging as this. Um, Otherwise, there will be consequences for the lack of preparation and the lack of engagement with all sides and addressing people's fears and concerns. Mm. And that needs to begin. You can never begin preparation soon enough. I think from a unionist point of view, this would be worse than Brexit. I mean, Brexit has been full of contradictions, but this is off the scale. You'll be asking people to emigrate by continuing to live uh, in the street uh, that they grew up in. I mean, they will still live in the street that they grow up in. They will still be who they are and their identity will still be respected and accommodated. And that's the challenge that we Mm. have. But they'll have moved to a different country. But that's the situation that faced people in 1921. And now, under the Good Friday Agreement, a constitutional arrangement can be changed by agreement. And that's where the referendum comes in. So, you know, we do have a huge challenge ahead. But there are members of the unionist community Mm who are engaging, and some do believe and have said it to me and have, have said it on the record, that, you know, a United Ireland might be better than the Briggs of Britain. And Lady Sylvia Herman, who is the unionist MP for North Down, she's an independent unionist MP, her husband was the former chief constable mm. of the RUC, said that there would be a referendum on a United Ireland in her lifetime. OK, and so, if there's to be an economic union, uh, which... Uh looks very likely, doesn't it? Uh, but if there is to be an economic union, uh, would you say they may as well go the whole way? Well, I mean, I suppose that's many people in the Ulster Unionist Party and the Democratic Unionist Party fear that, that the deal that Boris Johnson has done mm. puts them in a halfway house. Uh, but nothing can change yeah. unless people agree to it, and that is provided in the Good Friday Agreement. Nobody can be forced into a United Ireland. It's a democratic decision of the people in a referendum. That's what the Good Friday Agreement is. Um, the DUP seem to be belatedly signed up to that idea, but you know, in terms of the the the, the power and the importance mm. of the Good Friday Agreement, but we do need 
to have that engagement with them and address the concerns that they have around identity, which, to be honest with you, is probably the key issue. The economic issues are secondary, and they, we found mm. that in the unification of Germany, which was you know, a, a colossal event in, in world history, but also happened at such a pace uh, and decisions were made that were incorrect that if they had preparation done and had time, they probably would have made different decisions, but they were costly mistakes. We don't need to make costly mistakes because we have time currently, but we need to use that time uh, to make sure that we we have the answers to the questions that people have on these issues. Okay, and as you said at the outset, if there is to be a poll, how that poll might take place, uh, what would be the deciding factors for the Northern Secretary in calling uh, for that vote and who would be entitled to vote in a referendum if it was to happen. Uh, but we leave it there for the moment and thank you very much indeed, as always, uh, for joining us here on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Mark Daly is a uh, Fianna Fáil Senator and compiler of the first report in the history of the Dáil and Senate on Uniting Ireland. Michael at LMFM.ie The Michael Reed Show Now, if you're found as uh, somebody driving and overtaking dangerously, you face a fine of €80 and three penalty points. From the 12th of November, if you're dangerously overtaking a cyclist, uh, you'll get those three penalty points and an increased fine. Instead of €80, it will be €120. Tony Toner is uh, Training Director with the Institute of Advanced Motorists of Ireland, and Tony is on the line. And a very good morning to you, Tony, and thanks for joining us morning, this morning. Uh, what do you know about these new laws? Well, Michael, the, uh, I think the vulnerability of cyclists is, is, is well documented now. It's been pointed out. Uh, the ad campaign on TV is is uh, is there. It's, mm. Everybody has seen it. Uh, there are signs in the local roads around Rahad, as you know, if you go out towards uh, Bellews Town into Knoll, etc., where the cyclists are, are uh, used that on a very regular basis. Um, you have the signs there saying, uh, you know, put one and a half meters between you and a cyclist. Hmm. So, you know, you know, road users, drivers, where I think everybody's pretty aware. Uh, no and I'm sure everybody does when they can, uh, but it's not always possible to give that much space. Uh, 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 what would it be considered uh, to be dangerous? Well, I see, um, I suppose, uh, this, Michael, is that there's nearly a conflict arising now between cyclists and everybody else, particularly motorised transport on the road, motorised vehicles on the road. Yeah. And there's a them and us scenario being created. Um, and that's adversarial. Uh, it's, it's going to end bad for everybody. Um, uh, there is no question that uh, cyclists are, as I said, vulnerable. Our roads, uh, particularly this time of year, carry wet leaves. They carry the damage. Uh, all of that stuff in on the left-hand side where cyclists cycle so they need that bit of space to be able to get around them and not drive into them and lose control all of that stuff then you come to the obligation of the cyclist to make themselves seen for the rest of us when you're driving in weather like we are now in the autumn you come into the dapple effect of sunlight coming through trees cyclists can disappear there you know i i'm as you know 
um, a motorcyclist as well. And we have the same issue on we're motorised. But we can disappear into the light of um, the autumn and the winter. Uh, you know, uh, cyclists have to take responsibility themselves, try and make themselves as visible as possible. Um, certainly for me as a motorcyclist, I'd like to see cyclists wearing helmets. Mm-hmm. The minute you mention that there is absolute um, uh, resistance mm-hmm. to any mention of legislation where uh, an approved uh, headgear for cyclists should be made compulsory, yes, one slip of a, a push bike, you know what I mean, a cycle, yeah. uh, and you fall, well, you're, you're, you're going to yeah. risk the same injury as I would on a motorcycle. Yeah, well, I think when you talk about push bikes, you conjure a, an image of uh, the type of bicycles that a lot of our listeners would have had when they were children, mm. but of course, they're different machines now, and they go at great speeds. There's no mm. question, they're, they're multi-geared, some yeah. of them are electrically yeah, 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 assisted, yeah, yeah. You, have, you have all that going on. And you have people out on the fitness kick, etc., you know, mm. at fair ball, like, no, not a problem with that. But they are covering ground at a rate of knots. Mm. Um, the problem is, as I said, for me, is, is I, I, I'd, I'd like to see a more, um, uh, how would you say, friendly approach to this, mm. where it was there was consideration given as distinct from uh, what looks to be developing into an adversarial mm. scenario where uh, and- uh, cyclists are the enemy and they don't do themselves any favour Michael we all have stories mm. we all I know I live in mm. Dublin City and I mm. wouldn't have to travel too far to find one coming against me at slow traffic mm. uh, not using the dedicated cycle lane they're out on the mm. drive lane driving two three four abreast on occasion out on these other country roads mm. uh, and a lot of cyclists Michael are actually road drivers as well they hold full licenses for cars, vans, trucks, some of them. Mm. So, you know what I mean? It's an attitudinal thing as much as anything else. Uh, and you're to give a, a metre uh, when you're overtaking... 1.5, yeah. yeah. Well, I think a metre in the town and 1.5 metres yes, right, outside yeah. of the town, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, which you know, may not be possible. So, well, it, it, Michael, you know, if there was a quid pro quo going on, that also means that if I'm in, in the town um, and there's not a metre of mm. a gap, should the cyclist go into it? Uh, because he's going into a gap where I am, and now I'm being compromised because I'm the one with endurance. Mm. Um, you know what I mean? I'm but do, does this mean that if you don't want to be fined for dangerous overtaking, you should continue to drive behind the bicycle, even though you may have three quarters of a, a metre? Well, now, now, we're, now we're down to the measurement. How mm. is it measured and how do you take that measurement uh, as evidence into a court of law? And that's, that is where um, obviously solicitors and senior counsel mm. are going to dance all over this legislation. And the speed that you pass at as well, of course. Well, you know what I mean? You know, if you slow down to nothing, you can uh, do it quite safely uh, with far less than a metre. You know, it, it is all about the space, Michael. It's about the mm. space to go out to the right and, and, and safely overtake. It's the space to get back in and, and and deal with other hazards that are on the road, whether that be, you know, junctions in, in um, how would you call it, w- within, say, 50 uh, metres of, of the overtake, etc., mm. uh, where vehicles or other cyclists could come out of. And, um, you know, there's 
judgments that drivers must make because they're motorised. Mm. Um, that is, as I said, consideration by cyclists of what motorists have to do with. Uh, if there was a quid pro quo on it, you know, this legislation and everything else would be easier to... Um, it'd be easier to, to put in place. It'd be easier to manage. Um, it dare I say it, if, if this was being done, there's probably no need for the legislation, but the cycling lobby has uh, obviously done its work and it has this now enshrined in law. Mm. Um, and we have to um, okay. do our best as motorists um, to um, uh, to avoid any um, conflict again on the road because mm. none of us want to, none of us want well, uh, absolutely not. So, or, or, and I'm sure nobody wants anybody else to end up injured uh, or worse uh, as a, a result of uh, that uh, conflict. Uh, but we'll see how it all plays out. We need uh, the cooperation of the cyclists. The new year, Michael. Mm-hmm. On, uh, you know, yeah. uh, coming back to us as well. Okay. You know, we need we need them to 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 basically stand up now, um, metaphorically, and uh, do what they can to ensure that. Um, uh, we're all safe and uh, we all get to our destinations. Thanks very much, Tony. Tony Toner, Training Director with uh, the Institute of Advanced Motorists of Ireland. Wednesday morning means uh, the newspapers, the local newspapers, uh, have been published. They're in your shops. We have them in studio with us. And Maggie is here with uh, the papers to tell us about some of uh, the stories on uh, the front pages. And we begin in Dundalk with uh, the Dundalk Democrat. Uh, An education story, but a story of industrial unrest. Absolutely. And the front page story is... The Democrat this week is talking about fears um, over the future of the DKIT after it it has been revealed that um, a proposed fifth school, a new fifth school, operating outside of existing practices and agreements has been actively pursued. Um, Apparently, uh, TUI representatives at the college are unhappy about this and along with their fears and their anger over the Institute's failure to pursue technical um, university status has led to their members to ballot for industrial action. Um, The ballot for the action is set to be completed by this Friday and if it goes ahead, it'll include measures like strike action, non-cooperation with any new entities within DKT and the withdrawal of TUI academic grades in, in institute-level bodies and okay. organisations. All right, well, that could uh, prove uh, quite serious. Uh, the Democrat also uh, reporting on ambulance response times. Absolutely, yeah. Um, waiting times for ambulances in Loud is another talking point with recent research showing that services in Loud have taken over an hour to respond to emergency calls out on at least six different occasions in the past 12 months. On one occasion, it took a crew an hour and 27 minutes to arrive to their destination. And given that guidelines drawn up by HICWA state that an ambulance should arrive at an emergency call out in less than 19 minutes in at least 80% of all cases, obviously that's a huge worry. And um, Steve McMahon of the Irish Patients Association is quoted in the piece saying mm. it's a huge concern and their organisation would hope that the National Ambulance Service would be reviewing each and every case that fails to meet guidelines. OK, well the papers in Dundalk published before uh, the seizure of 3.2 million euro worth of uh, cannabis last night. Uh, mm-hmm. But the Argus in Dundalk is reporting on drugs on its front page. Yeah, it's a little bit of a premonition, the headline. Um, basically, they're telling us that there's been a huge rise in drug crimes in Dundalk. The story goes on to say that there's the number of um, recorded drug offences in the town has risen by almost 160% over the last four years. And that's according to the figures from the latest um, CSO stats. Um, drug crimes at the station in Dundalk rose from 78 in 2015 to 
203 cases in the last year or just last year mm-hmm. which is an increase significantly higher than seen in, here in Drogheda actually as well oh, okay. so it's a, right. that's a huge worry and on the inside pages there's calls for increased penalties for cross-border smuggling coming from the recent sittings of the British-Irish Parliamentary Assembly Declan Bronick was on the show with us here as well talking about those meetings and he launched the new report highlight, highlighting the effectiveness of cross-border cooperation between law enforcement agencies particularly in light of Brexit and the UK's imminent departure from the EU. Okay, well from drugs uh, and smuggling to something completely different again in the Argus. Absolutely, I couldn't cover the Argus this week without mentioning the lovely spread that's been given over to marking um, the 25th birthday of the Spirit Store music venue um, this month. There's a full page given over to an interview with owner um, Mark Deary, former Green Party councillor and he's telling the story of how the venue transformed from being two bedrooms knocked together to become one of the most popular music venues in the country so it's uh, well worth a read for any of the music fans out there. Okay we go to Drogheda the Drogheda Independent uh, I don't know if I'm getting older but are, are Gardy getting younger? No you're getting older Michael okay, that's it. Okay. <laughs> No there is a gorgeous <laughs> picture in the front of the DI this week of Inspector Baxter Brown alongside Superintendent Andrew Waters of Drogheda Garda Station. Everybody listeners to the programme and to the station will be well aware of Baxter's story but just to recap um, he was diagnosed with uh, SCID and is facing a trip to Great Ormond Street Hospital for vital treatment in the coming months but all of that was put aside for one day for the annual Garda Sports Day at the O'Reilly's Club. Um, Baxter was signed up for the up to the force for the day and apparently he gave Superintendent Waters a run for his money when it came to the ball sticks and um, he got to oversee all the operations at the station looking after the dog unit, the horse unit and the Garda helicopter and um, apparently for the day that was in it he was supplied with a specially made uniform so he could look the part and Superintendent um, Waters is quoted saying that Baxter was so impressive he got the fastest promotion in history. Well, there you go. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Uh, and uh, bids, uh, this uh, initiative uh, from uh, the business community in the town also getting good coverage in the paper as well. Yeah, absolutely. Councillors and Loud have unanimously backed the draw to bids at the October meeting of Loud County Council. The scheme is now set to proceed next year. Um, so before the establishment of the scheme comes into force on January 1st, the bids team have 60 days to form a board of directors to be ratified. And obviously the purpose of the bids is to allow ratepayers to draw up a scheme of projects and services and works additional to those provided by the council that are all set to mm. improve and enhance the district. Okay, to the Mead Chronicle, an exclusive on its front page and it really is a, a very interesting story. Very interesting, but thankfully one with a happy ending as well. Um, the front page is dominated by a picture of a smiling Kyle Fitzgerald um, following the safe return of his wheelchair in the family's car after it was stolen from outside their home in the early hours of Saturday morning. Uh, there was widespread media coverage here on our own station and, and across the country um, and luckily the media coverage bore fruit very quickly and on Saturday afternoon a, fam- a man knocked on the door of the, the front door of their home and handed them back the keys to the car with all of Kyle's specially adapted equipment inside and basically asked them not to ask any questions but uh, Gardaí mm. are looking into the matter further. Okay, well it's a happy ending to some degree. Um, Thankfully. Some concern for students then in Ashburn who study in DKIT, not just about that industrial dispute that we heard about earlier. No, it's about mm. how they're going to get to mm. college in the mm. first place. Um, stressed out students travelling from Ashburn to Dundalk are saying they've been left stranded after a bus company travelling to DKIT has revealed they're going to pull the plug on their service after 15 
15 years. Um, the company involved, Royal Breffney Tours, have made the decision um, after months of consultation with the college because they're saying that it's not been a viable service for them for some time now and on occasions have made the journey with less than 10 students. So rises in, in fuel costs, insurance costs and wages have made their overheads um, too high to handle basically so they can't afford to keep going and obviously they're hugely disappointed at having to make the decision and apologise for the inconvenience but I suppose that's all kind of cold comfort to the students affected um, and they're talking to the Chronicle about the ups- uh, upset and stress they're enduring. One has even said she's considering transferring to another college. Well, okay and uh, coverage given in the Chronicle to childcare as well this week. Yeah absolutely I'll finish up with this one. It's a story we covered ourselves in the programme this week. Um, the childcare seminar organised by SIP2 which was highlighting many of the flaws and failings in the current childcare system. Um, Mags Coogan is quoted in the paper she's an early edu- years educator with over 23 years of experience and she told the conference that those working in the sector are drowning in documentation and have to apply every year for the same funding that they feel totally let down and disrespected by the oversight body so obviously there's lots of problems emphasised mm. in the seminar. Okay, very good. Thanks for that Maggie. Now the Association of uh, Catholic Priests is warning of a catastrophic situation in the next 10 to 20 years because of uh, the shortage of uh, priests. Uh, it may not be possible to have a church wedding or uh, to have a Christian burial as uh, the case may be. Father Iggy O'Donovan, Augustinian priest is on uh, the line with us. A very good morning to Iggy and thanks as always for joining us. Uh, it seems morning, a, a very unattractive profession these days. Well, uh, I think this, uh, this has been staring us in the face for quite a while. But, uh, they, uh, you know, the fact that uh, we're most clerics around me now are chronologically challenged, shall we say. But when it comes to the um, catastrophic situation, Michael, that you refer to, uh, there's uh, no reason on earth why burials and all that couldn't go ahead without having, you don't have to have a clergyman for everything. I know in the past we felt we had to ha- have our finger in every pie, but the point is coming when the lay Catholics, if they're still interested, will simply have to do much of this. That's the way it is. And uh, that's how I see it. But it's been standing us in the face forever. And uh, many of us realise that reform is, is essential, but very few are prepared to say it publicly because they hope the show stays on the road long enough to see them off the premises, so to speak. <laughs> and uh, few who have spoken mm. out, you, well, you know what happens then. Yeah. Okay, well, we might talk about that in a moment, uh, but when you talk about reform, uh, you talk about priests being able to marry and women being uh, able uh, to take up the priesthood. Well, the thing about priests being able to marry, as far as most of us are concerned, now that ship has sailed, shall we say. But nevertheless, uh, that's not a doctrinal matter. It's a simply matter of discipline, and that could be changed tomorrow, if you like, without changing anything to do with Catholic faith. Now, the women one little more problematic in that they tell us those of them that oppose women's ordination that Christ didn't do it therefore we can't do it any more than he didn't use a computer we shouldn't be using them either but uh, it's staring us straight in the face that uh, the most active part of the Roman Catholic Church and the greatest helpers and the people who do most of the work are in fact female members Mm. and I think that they would make a tremendous contribution if their talents could could be used and given full ministry. In other words, ordained priests. Not that many of them might want to know, but in any, but I have no problem with it whatsoever, and I have advocated that publicly for years. But then, on the other hand, there is an instruction which came from John Paul II back in the 90s that this is not even to be discussed, never mind implemented, not even to be discussed, an instruction you wouldn't expect to get from North Korea. 
so what's the upshot of all of this that lay people carry out these uh, duties uh, because uh, you talk uh, about people being banished or, or you refer to it yeah. there in your own case uh, because you're somebody who's uh, spoken about uh, some of uh, the reform that's been needed for some time but uh, it, it was over baptism that uh, ended up yeah, uh, and, uh, and the upshot of it all is that uh, you don't need a, a priest to baptise a child Technically speaking, any any person, and they don't even have to be Christian, by the way, mm. who, who um, baptizes a child may do so. But we've had the tradition that, in other words, if a priest didn't do it, it couldn't be done. But now I do accept that, and it is theologically necessary that only an ordained minister may say, for example, celebrate the Eucharist. That is bottom line. In case anybody start, is on the line to Rome already, mm. I, that, I accept that. But what I don't accept is that that person cannot be a woman. There I draw the line. Mm. But then there's so much else, like, say, say funerals and whatnot, that people who are not fully ordained, deacons and whatnot, can do all of that. And um, indeed, uh, there are 1,200 million Catholics in the world, a tiny percentage of whom are ordained ministers. And my God, if there was ever a waste of talent and the lack of use of the resources that are available, we are guilty of it. Mm. But at, this, at the same time, I don't expect any huge reform, any huge reforms in the immediate future, because the little bits that's tried by Pope Francis at the moment, I know that there's a most insidious conspiracy against him inside the heart of the church. And there are right wing groups, especially in America, coming together to undermine him and hoping that in a year or two nature will take care of him and we can get back to the good old days. One despair is on. Well, with, with whom? What, what, what's the average age of a priest in Ireland, what do you think? I would say it's probably at the moment something in the 60s and rising, mm. probably higher than that, in fact, because uh, people... Re- I'm 63, by the way, and people sometimes refer to me as one of the young priests. My God, when I look around <laughs> me. You know, <laughs> Mm. You know, there's very few of us don't have what I call the Charlie Haw. He passes, you know, for the bus. Yeah. What 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 yeah. what age does a priest retire at? Technically speaking, I think we're supposed to hand in our resignation at seventy five. But there's a huge number who are very active, well over seventy five, and they're very and they still do excellent ministry. Mind you, there are those who are way under that and they're doing mm. nothing. Uh, and how many priests are ordained on average on a yearly basis in Ireland? Mm. Oh, at the moment, it would, be, it would be a handful. It would be a handful, possibly possibly now in single numbers. Mm. So that, that will show you. Like, uh, Now, I'm not saying that out of any gloating about it, but it is a fact. And um, the other thing, Michael, there, when you mentioned about funerals and weddings and so mm. forth, increasingly the, uh, people in Ireland are opting for secular and humanist weddings and funerals. So therefore, the demand won't be anything as big as it once was. Anything is big because uh, the secular weddings, secular funerals are becoming, and if that's what people want, all the better, rather than going through the rigmarole of a religious thing, which they don't believe. Letting on. Letting on, because uh, Mm -hmm. in many ways we're cultural Catholics. In many ways we're cultural Catholics, and we commit ourselves to all types of things, promising to bring children up when they're baptised as Catholics, Mm -hmm. and promising this, that, and the other. And uh, God, if the promises were lived up, we'd be an island of saints and scholars. <laughs> I'm afraid we're not. I'm afraid we're not. Iggy, we leave it there. Thank you indeed. As always, Father Iggy O'Donovan.
Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Maggie is here with some of uh, the calls and comments uh, that have been coming to us uh, today. What have people been talking to you about, Maggie? Well, there's a mixture of topics actually um, this morning, but responding to this morning and yesterday's show. And um, just starting off with that, Sarah was talking about the attack on Deputy Martin Kenny's house. I I know it's an issue we're coming back to later on the programme today, but she was saying she was disgusted to hear about the attack on his home when his family are so close by. No matter how much you disagree with somebody's view, um, nothing gives you the right to endanger their life in that way while nobody was injured on this occasion it could all have ended very differently and that's a very frightening thought yeah, very very differently and very lucky that nobody was injured absolutely mm. and on the same mm. subject um, Thomas says those who carried out the attack on Deputy Kenny's car are cowards of the highest order attacking his home in the middle of the night while he slept nearby with his family he says if you have issues with somebody um, on their political stance well then at least have the guts to voice your objections to their face and have a rational and adult conversation with the person even if you disagree with them don't hide under the cover of darkness and attack a man while he sleeps and put his kids at risk as well. Those responsible need to be caught and held accountable for their actions. Now obviously the papers are dominated today by the sentencing hearing of two boys for the murder of Anna Crigel and none of us can for a second imagine how little Anna's parents feel. So we'll hear what Geraldine Crigel had to say to the Central Criminal Court now. The happiest day of our lives was the 10th of August 2006, the day the court declared that we could become the parents of Anna, who we felt was the most wonderful child in the world. We agonised for so many years through a laborious adoption process, waiting for her, and when she came, she brought to us everything that we had dreamed of for all those years and much more. She was wild and wonderful, Electric, so full of fun, madness and laughter. We could not believe the happiness and joy we had found in our lives. She was the love of our lives and every single night before she went to bed, she told us that she loved us too. Every night she came to kiss us and she said always in French, good night, sleep tight, have beautiful dreams, I love you. She cannot do that anymore and we cannot tell you how badly it hurts. On Monday the 14th of May, 2018. Anna didn't come home. The cold fear we felt knowing she was in serious danger, knowing that something or someone prevented her from coming home to us. We knew she would never stay out without permission. She would never hurt us. The panic, the dread, the agonising with the hours that turned into days. We didn't know where she was or what had happened to her, but somebody did. The saddest day of our lives was the 17th of May 2018. Three days later, we heard those dreaded words that no parent wants to hear. We are so sorry. Our precious little girl's body had been found. The depth of pain and haunting nightmares that we live with following the formal identification of Anna in such traumatic and horrific circumstances, there is no way to describe how that feels. We brought Anna to live in a safe place, a quiet country village, a leafy suburb where the only sounds in the morning are the doves cooing. No one could suspect the evil that lay in waiting for her. No one could anticipate the darkness that swirled in the souls of those that murdered and violated her. How could any child or even any adult imagine in their worst nightmares the danger that lay ahead? She wanted to live, but she was not permitted to do that. Our lives are destroyed by what happened to Anna. 
we cannot look at a group of teenage boys in the same way ever again. That cold fear hits and brings all the horror back. Imagine the terror. Imagine the pain she suffered. That will live with us all our lives. We lie awake at night thinking about the fear she felt when she realised she was going to be killed. We pace the house at night, agonising about the torture she went through, the horrendous pain she suffered, the sadistic violation of her beautiful, pure and innocent body. To think that she was left to rot in that squalid hellhole for over three days, it is unbearable. It's inhumane. The whole family and friends suffer so terribly every day and every night with the agony of knowing now in the most explicit detail what Anna was subjected to and knowing that her private life, along with the distorted misrepresentation of her by a twisted mind with tainted eyes, have been displayed on every TV station and newspaper in Ireland and across the world. She was just... A little girl with so many hopes and dreams and so much love inside her that she shared generously with all who knew her. Her dream was to build a hotel called the Anna Love Hotel. She drew detailed floor plans and we, her parents, would have a special cottage on the land where we could spend holidays and be near her. Her plans, our future, shattered. Her little sisters, aged 10 and 6, are devastated that they never got to meet their big sister. She was to meet them for the first time this year and we had to deliver the heartbreaking news to her birth family that they will never, ever see her. When she had written to them previously, she said, in her own words, I am so afraid that I will never meet you. Her fear was warranted. She never did. They cried and cried. They will never feel her warm hugs and loving kisses or see her dance so elegantly or hear her infectious laughter and we will never experience that joy again. Never, ever again will we share the beautiful life we had with Anna. We have lost our child and the children she dreamed of having, our grandchildren. There are no words. What words can describe how we feel at the loss of our wonderful little girl? She loved her life. She embraced all of the wonderful experiences life brought her. She was so kind to everyone. The pain of living without her is unbearable. There is such emptiness in our lives without her. Life without Anna is no longer, nor is it even an existence. It is a misery that we must endure for the rest of our lives. We have lost our precious daughter, and every family occasion without her is entrenched with pain and sorrow. How can there be any solace in this conviction? For any of us, Anna's death is irreversible. Shortly before she died, she made a video on her Snapchat story as she walked to school with her schoolmates. She said, I quote, I love you guys so much. In fact, I love all first years. Such was the big heart Anna had and she genuinely shared it with everyone. At the start of secondary school, she was asked to write a paragraph on her hopes for the future. This is what she wrote. My hopes for the future? I hoped I would get into secondary school, and she names the school, and I did. That is one goal down. My second hope is to go to Paris University, like my dad, the hardest one to get into, and when I come home from Paris, I would like to get a dog. I would like to get married too. Not sure if I want any babies. Well, not yet anyway. I hope that I have a good life. I hope everyone I meet will be nice. We always felt that Anna was too good to be true, an ephemeral angel in our hearts and in the hearts of the people of Ireland and Russia who love and will love her forever. We are a broken family. Our heart ache for you, Anna, so many 
of the people in Anna's life are traumatised and suffer nightmare stress and anxiety, not just adults but children who are not only traumatised but in fear for their own lives. Anna is lost to all of those people that loved her. Remember how much she loved you and hold on to that love in your hearts. Thank you, Anna, for giving us all of that precious love. We miss you. We love you. No one can ever take that away from us. And that was the victim impact statement given to the Central Criminal Court by Anna Creegel's mother, Geraldine Creegel. Um, well, I don't really know what you can say after listening to that. Mm. Um, to be honest, Michael, I mean, it, I just I admire her so much for being able to, mm. to get through that mm. and be able yeah. to say it in court. Oh, absolutely. It, yeah. I don't know yeah. if I could yeah. do it, yeah. but um, yeah. Yeah. it was a beautiful mm. tribute mm. to a beautiful girl, by yeah. all accounts. And Poor just, little girl. Yeah, yeah. no and doubt just, about it. You know, yeah. Very, very hard to understand what oh. happened there. Yeah, You you know, mm. I mean, the, the court case said mm. that there's been no clear reason given as to why she died and you would just hope that mm. the family can get some sense of closure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, uh, I, I think uh, if uh, you've ever wondered uh, how the parents must feel, uh, I think I think Geraldine probably expressed it better than anybody could. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and um, it kind of seems a bit mm. um, strange to go back mm. to okay. the comments, yeah. and, uh, you know, following on from that. But yeah. um, I'll just go back to a couple of comments that we have left over from this morning um, and from yesterday. Um, on the issue of Brexit, Eggie, uh, Eddie says he agrees with Margaret's comments from yesterday that it'll be 2030 and Brexit will still be dragging on. In fact, he thinks Margaret was being particularly kind in her estimation. He mm. reckons it's more likely to be 2050 before we see the end of this mass, even if that... And um, mm. on the issue of childcare, following on from the interview you did um, with the Big Star campaign, um, Anne says that childcare costs are the single biggest expense that people have after the mortgage payments. They're crippling families and some parents are literally working to hand their wages over to a childminder each week. When are government going to get serious about tackling the high costs in that sector and actually doing something to make things easier for hard-working parents? I don't know. I suppose the question is, will it be an election issue this side of Christmas? It may be an election issue. Uh, the SIP2 trade union behind the Big Star campaign say it will be an election issue but the question is when will the election be? Uh, We know that the turkeys have voted for Christmas in the United Kingdom (laughs) and there's a lot of turkeys uh, in a lot of cartoons in the British newspapers uh, this morning suggesting uh, that uh, they've just voted to make themselves redundant. This is it, Mm. exactly. Mm. Well actually going back to voting, um, be it in an election or elsewhere, um, Mm. going back to the apologies that you played out yesterday in relation to Votegate, um, Declan from Delique was in contact to say that there's something very wrong in this country if we have to listen to politician after politician apologise to the public for the behaviour like we did on yesterday's show. He said it's a really sad reflection on today's political climate. Mm, okay, well we may hear more about uh, those voting discrepancies a little bit later on today uh, when they'll be looked at once again by an Oireachtas committee. Um, and moving on to the UK election and Anna wants to know um, what happens if there's a complete changing of the guard in the UK Parliament after the election in December does it mean if Boris is dumped and Jeremy gets in then we're back to the drawing board and Brexit and have to start the whole thing all over again she says she's not a supporter of Boris by any stretch of the imagination but she almost hopes he stays in power if it brings an end to Brexit sooner rather than later um, well, I think the answer to that is yeah 
Uh, I mean, no. Which I, I meant, I meant, yes. <laughs> I mean, no. Uh, maybe. Me uh, don't, don't, <laughs> don't commit me to anything. Okay. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I think the answer is God knows. Anything could happen at this stage. Uh, and uh, the polls indicate uh, that Boris will get a, a huge majority. But I, I don't think anybody is brave enough to say that that is exactly what will happen after the vote takes place because there's a campaign to go through at this stage. Uh, things can change and quite often do in the real poll, as the politicians call the election. Elections. Uh, but uh, there is a, a strong chance that Boris Johnson will have a, a majority big enough uh, to be able to deliver a Brexit deal, which may not be uh, to the liking of the DUP. I was just actually reading somewhere on social media yesterday, I think it was Gavin Riley pointed out that um, if the election goes ahead on the 12th, which is supposed mm-hmm. to, it means that the next president is going to be elected on Friday the 13th. Oh, OK. Mm-hmm. Unlucky for some. Yep. And on the issue of cyclists... Um, that would be the next Prime Minister. Oh, sorry, Prime yeah. Minister, yeah, yeah, not President. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> cyclists um, and the issue we've just talked about with Tony Toner. Jim mm. says it would be easy to be considerate of cyclists if they'd all just cycle one in front of the other. But in some cases, they ride three and four abreast and that's usually frustrating for most of us travelling behind them, never mind the dangers involved. Mm. And on the same subject, uh, Jack was getting value for his money this morning with his text because he covered two issues in one message. Well done, Jack. Yeah, on mm. the issue of the election in England, he said could we not have one here as well and try and get a new view on the political landscape and in relation to the new bike law he thinks it's going to be another law that's going to give people a bad feeling towards the Gardaí you have to enforce yet another stupid law all of which will lead to clogging up the court systems even more. Okay very good and he got value for his money because it was a text message. Yes, it's, uh, you can text for free can't you uh, with WhatsApp? Yeah, you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Uh, another option. It's the same Absolutely. number, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It is, yes, yeah, same yeah, number, yeah. yeah. So uh, that's even better value for money. This if, is it. If, and the run up to Christmas, yeah, yeah, it's good yeah. to save your money. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, thanks for that, Maggie, and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. You can text us or call us or email us, as the case may be. The Michael Reed Show. Now, 3.2 million euro of herbal cannabis uh, was uh, discovered by Gardaí in Dundalk last night. Uh, I suppose gardeners will often talk about weed and uh, their vegetable patches, but Gardaí may have been surprised when they stopped a vegetable truck and discovered uh, the weed here hidden in between the vegetables. So let's talk about this uh, with Rory Omerku, who's a Sinn Féin councillor and chairperson of the Louth Drug and Alcohol Forum. A very good morning to you, Rory, and thanks for for joining us. Uh, two men are under arrest, one aged 57, the other 42, Gardy say. One is from the UK and the other from Northern Ireland. Are you able to uh, give us any more information on this discovery? Well, here, I think the information is out there in relation to the fact that these two men were arrested. I doubt very much the guards were that surprised. Uh, this is obviously a serious operation, a real se- success for the Garda National Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau. It was a cross-border action. Obviously, we'd like to see more of this. 3.2 million. That's You're taking that out of here, the local and state supply chain, you have to assume. And beyond that, you're removing money from dangerous gangsters, you know, who are holding communities in there to ransom. In absolute fear. This isn't particularly long after you would have had a seizure of five grand and an arrest in Mohevnamore, five grand of uh, heroin. You know, obviously an, an incredibly serious drug and in a serious... But we're dealing with a, an, an epidemic. It's, mm. it's absolutely huge. Like, literally within the last week, uh, I spoke to the Family Addiction Support Network and I also spoke to a number of uh, community workers. 
And what they talk about is, whereas years ago they would have talked about the possibility of you knew 10 to 15 drug dealers, at this stage you can quite easily name, you know, 200. You know, some of these are minor players. Some of these are addicts that are caught in a bad situation. But it's an absolutely huge business. In Dundalk. Here in Dundalk. So if you have 200 200 dealers in Dundalk, how many people are, are, are using? Well, I, I'd say that it's frightening. Um, I suppose everyone remembers when Chief Superintendent Mangan spoke about losing a generation to cocaine. There's a huge amount of people that would be using the likes of cocaine and, and other narcotics at the weekend. You have a huge amount of young people that are using cannabis. And again, cannabis herbs such as this, which is a hell of a lot stronger with all of the associated problems. If you're talking about mental mm. health issues and everything that go with it. And you're putting a huge amount of money in all these cases into the hands of dealers who then later will deal with people who have problems and debts. And these problems and debts are visited on their families. And you deal with extortion, violence Mm. and just incredibly serious crime. The petrol bombs and uh, the threats and the beatings and the guns and the whole lot, of course. Yeah, 3.2 million euros worth of grass. Uh, it's hard to uh, uh, imagine what that means. Uh, it was on the back a of, lot of smoke. Uh, it was on the back of one truck uh, with vegetables. Uh, would it fill a truck? I'm not exactly sure what 3.2 millions worth of cannabis looks like. And again, sometimes you're reminded of what you hear in films of mm. drug dealers talking about street value, and they say, "I would love to see that street." You know, but the mm. thing is, even if you have the value of this, it's still it's a huge amount of drugs. It's a huge amount of revenue. Um, and would you have the value? Because I, I think sometimes uh, people believe uh, that Gardaí overestimate the value. That people are selling it uh, at uh, a price much l- uh, smaller than they estimate it to be worth. Well, I, I imagine obviously you're dealing with somebody who's taken in that sort of an amount of selling it on at a wholesale price. So I imagine, yeah, they mightn't necessarily be getting that price for. But I certainly don't know the ins and outs of, you know, drug prices at mm. varying drug dealer levels. Just, uh, and, you know, but, and where, where uh, do you think a, a load that size would come from? Would that have been imported or would that have been grown locally? Well, that's a huge amount to grow. I, I'm like, I would be taking a guess. I don't have the information, but I imagine it's, it, it, it's imported. But you're, I'm, I'm assuming at some point um, this information will become clearer. Now, that could possibly be when people are being processed through the judicial system. Um, I suppose the other thing is, I doubt very much that anyone would have difficulty in any part of Ireland today getting cannabis. So it's when you, it's while it's great to see all these seizures, mm. what it's probably just showing is the tip of the iceberg and just the absolute size of the drug trade mm. and all the all the ancillary problems that are there. You've heard, obviously, in the last while about increased numbers of seizures. Now, that might be down to an increased number of checks and, you know, better resourcing and greater work by the guards and other agencies. We're also hearing, though, about the lack of funding for addiction services and other required services. Mm. Um, In the Loud Drug and Alcohol uh, Task Force, we've already talked about putting the asks together that are required for services within Loud and that we will look within the next while of putting this together and bringing it to government from a point of view of getting at least some of what we need 
I think in recent times you've had the North East Drugs and Alcohol Task Force seeking meetings with politicians and looking, obviously, for advocacy in relation to services across the entire area, mm. whereas I, I think in parts of Cavan and Monaghan you have some um, you have some services that are already looking at possibly closing up, and we have services like the Family Addiction Support Network, where if it wasn't for the volunteerism, they wouldn't be able to do the great work that they do, where they are a connect for families or people who have difficulties to come directly to a safe place, where then there can be later connection with the Gardaí or what other services are required. Mm. Uh, this stuff used to come from places like Africa uh, before people started uh, to uh, grow it uh, in uh, these uh, uh, cannabis uh, grow houses uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, we don't know if this was grown locally or if it was imported. You say it was most likely imported, uh, but whether that was from Africa or Amsterdam or wherever, uh, then I suppose it's travelled long distance uh, and over uh, a lot of land space and to, through ports and so on and I gather that uh, it was mixed in with the vegetables and put on uh, the back of a, a truck and then onto a boat somewhere uh, but uh, that's the kind of thing that's going on all of the time It looks like you're dealing with criminal ingenuity and it's very difficult to stop altogether you know, because we're talking about Brexit in the last while and we're talking about the free flow of goods and services and difficulties that could be caused by Brexit. So obviously goods and services have to flow in order for shops, shopping centres, dealers, mm. as in, as I say, car legitimate dealers, that they can all get their goods just in time. So that doesn't, So that obviously complicates it from a point of view of finding the likes of uh, illegally hidden narcotics. Yeah, this uh, would seem like a, a significant uh, discovery on the face of it, uh, but you'd be concerned that it's a, a drop in the ocean. I think so. Now, it's significant, and I always believe that you need to take on these criminal gangs and anything that hurts them is good. My only fear is, see if some bigwig is out of money, that the pressure comes down the line in relation to lower-level dealers, that it then seeps out and the pressure is put on vulnerable families you're always worried about that but the reality is I welcome this and I'd like to see more of it Okay, we'll leave it there Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning Sinn Féin Councillor Rurio Muraku is uh, the chairperson of uh, the Louth Drug and Alcohol Forum now to uh, the arson attack on uh, the Sinn Féin TD, Martin Kenny, as you know, his car was set on fire in the middle of uh, the night as he and uh, his uh, three youngest uh, children, an 18-year-old, a 17-year-old and a 15-year-old, as well as his wife, Helen, were asleep in bed. It was a really incredible attack. I've been speaking with Brian Caloran, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of the Immigrant Council of Ireland, uh, because uh, there is a theory that this was racially motivated because of Martin Kenny's support for asylum seekers uh, who were to be housed in Ballinamore. Well, I think, first of all, one of the things we have to do is, is be cautious about the motives around the attack on his car. I suppose that there will be a Garda investigation, and I'm sure that's ongoing. So I think we have to be cautious around the circumstances of it. But I think it's clear from what Deputy Kenny said, even the week before in the Dáil, that he has been subjected to threats. He had received text messages that were threatening himself, essentially death threats. 
um, as well as much negative commentary, you know, in, in person due to his intervention around the situation there. And he's speaking up in favor of asylum seekers and, and refugees saying these are human beings and we need to treat them as such. Um, it's not the first instance. We've heard other ministers and other deputies in, in the Dáil say the same, that they've received threats for, for doing the same. Mm-hmm. And many people active in the area will be aware that there are people out there, unfortunately, who are active, who are organized, more organized than they were before, and who are actively trying to incite negative attitudes and opinions against asylum seekers and refugees and are not above making threats and in some instances carrying out threats or carrying out acts of physical violence. What is a, a play uh, in those circumstances, do you think, Brian? Because uh, when uh, there is uh, the news that asylum seekers are going to move into a direct provision centre, whether that's in Balnamore or Uchtarard, uh, there are quite possibly legitimate concerns that people have. But if people are concerned and their concerns are legitimate, that doesn't lead them to a position where they want to kill somebody. Absolutely not. And I, I think it's probably true to say that the vast majority of people who are involved in these situations, you know, protesting potentially or raising issues around the fact that a centre may open in their town are not of that ilk. They're not in the, in that headspace where they're, where they're going into that. They're a minority within that group. I think what we're seeing is uh, essentially... What we're looking at, and we haven't really identified this, I think, enough, a lot of towns in rural Ireland are still recovering from the fact that we had a recession over the last 10 years, you know. They haven't seen investment in housing, they haven't seen investment in education, and they haven't seen investment in medical services. You know, we hear a lot about the economic recovery Ireland has undergone, but we haven't heard an awful lot about the social recovery, and the social recovery is still very much at an early stage, especially in rural Ireland. So when you get an instance where you have 900 or 1,000 people that live in a town, and they hear that 200 people may be coming in the centre. There is a reaction, some of which is based on the fact that the local infrastructure they fear may not be up to scratch to actually do that. Some of which may be fear and ignorance around the fact that you know they don't know who's coming. They don't know who asylum seekers are. They don't know. They haven't had any prior consultation. They haven't had the groundwork laid with them. And, and there's, a, there's a kind of a knee-jerk reaction that's a little bit of, you know, hold on a second here. We don't know what's going on. And then at the upper end of that, some of it may be informed by racism. There may be some racism against asylum seekers and some of that racism then is organized it's people coming in from outside the area who are going around and using these instances and using this public dissatisfaction as a lightning rod to try and harness anti-migrant anti-asylum seeker um opinions you know and in some areas they're having some success we've seen direct provision centers not go ahead in some areas in other areas we're seeing them being completely rejected like bursa kane and abby leaks mm-hmm. they've gone the other direction they've taken the higher road and said no we're going to welcome these people they're human beings so it's a complicated muddy situation situation that I wouldn't identify everybody there as being racist because that would categorize people in a very negative way that may not be the case and they may have as you say legitimate concerns about what what their town can do Mm. and the method of direct provision uh, being landed in a town to them is problematic so that needs to be teased out and addressed but they're volatile situations because these right-wing agitators are there in a lot of instances. Uh, Is there a belief amongst these right-wing agitators uh, that they can stop buildings being used as direct provision centres because we've seen fires in other places in other parts of the country. There has been arson attacks on two proposed centres, as you're right in saying, um, and 
that is the most extreme end, obviously, of trying to deter it. It's criminal behavior. It's not, it's not, you know, it's, it, mm. it's outside the realm of any legitimate concern, any legitimate complaint or method of protest. It's completely criminal behavior mm. and it endangers life. It, it, it's only been, you know, pure luck in both instances that nobody was killed mm. and pure luck in, in, I suppose, in recent instances as well that nobody was, was killed. And, and I think it's one of those things where it crosses into the area that the Gardaí in particular, and I think we will be raising this, I think, with the Commissioner in the, in, in the coming couple of weeks, they need to be vigilant around some of these individuals because they are not above making um, and doing actions that are potentially life-threatening, you know. Well, that's it. They're not concerned citizens. They're criminally insane. I mean, as you say, we don't know for sure what the motivation was that led to the attack on Martin Kenny's uh, car home and family but we do know that it happened at a quarter past two in the morning in the middle of nowhere he lives in a very rural isolated spot in County Leitrim when uh, the fire crews came to put out the fire he said that just one car passed in the 90 minutes it took to put out the fire and that's how isolated his house actually is. Yeah, and that, and that is incredibly worrying. Like we have, you know, we have systems in the country of, you know, democratic processes that go towards, you know, like they, they, they're supposed to come from the community up to Dáil Éireann. You know, they're supposed to be about legitimate conversation. If you have concerns, raise them, they'll be dealt with. You know, there's methods and means for going about having these conversations. But I think there are some then that are prepared to act outside that and act outside that in a criminal manner. But even those that don't go as far as kind of, you know, acts of vandalism or acts of violence, there are many who are trying to agitate around these situations. And they see it as being, as I said, a lightning rod that they can get their message across. And a lot of it is disinformation. They're talking about, you know, they, they raise instances where they say asylum seekers who have gone into towns have, you know, raised the crime level in that town. That's simply not the case. There is no evidence whatsoever that asylum seekers in any way disproportionately commit crimes more or less than any other group mm. of people you know um, so, so they're, they're essentially lying and they're, and they're using disinformation to terrify a local population and as I say some instances local populations completely reject it they say hold on a minute no that's yeah. not the case we mm. know that's not the case and that's brilliant to see when that happens but in other instances then it goes the other way you know so, yeah. so it's a very active thing that's going on at the moment and it's something that I think not only did the government need to address not only did the people like ourselves and civil society need to address but we need local people in local communities to stand up and take a leadership role because that's way more influential at a local level than anybody saying anything from Dublin you know. Okay but it would seem to me that on occasion uh, there are legitimate concerns uh, that people living in some of these towns have had uh, but these agitators are more of a hindrance than a help but there are undoubtedly problems with how direct provision is being provided in this country and you hear people talk about uh, the percentage uh, of an increase in the population, maybe a 20% increase in the amount of people who live in a town overnight. Uh, are there the doctors? Are there the schools? Are there the jobs? Are there the social facilities? And how do you cope with such an increase in the number of people? Uh, yes, and, and I think it, it's worth noting as well that towns like Wicklow Town, for example, that received a, a direct provision centre recently, there were initial concerns, there were initial fears, but actually all the feedback coming out of the town at the moment now is that it actually went fine. There was mm. no there was no instance because it does it does now come with additional resources. So the government are very clear that they know that this will have an impact at a local level and, and they're doing what they can, I think, to, to bolster up those local resources to what extent they can. So there's a bit more of a plan around that, which is useful. But it's interesting to hear that in towns like Wicklow 
particular town, even local shop owners and local businesses are going, actually, you know what, this has had more of a positive impact mm. than anything else. Well, it is interesting and it's great to hear it, but before people realise that that is uh, the situation, no doubt they are concerned and they're genuine concerns. And therein lies the problem, does it not, in that those concerns are not being addressed. There's a breakdown in communication. There really is. I, I think, you know, we've, we've said it and many others have said it, that the model of direct provision, how they go about it. So, so if we take even, for example, if we park that, whether or not direct provision is a good idea, the model of how they put direct provision centres in a town is quite problematic because they do it through a private tender process. So they're doing it through a tender process whereby people will apply and say, OK, I have an establishment or a building that can be used. I'm going to apply and whether or not they win the contract then. Mm. So what the, the government will say is we cannot then lay groundwork before that because the private tender process doesn't allow us to say which place it's going to be. We don't know until they win the tender. They're in this kind of catch-22 where they can't lay the groundwork before doing it. And that's very problematic. You know, we would say, obviously, you need to move away from that private tender process, have it not be structured in that way so that you can actually go into a place a couple of months in advance and start laying the groundwork and having those conversations. I think that's really pushing back, I think, on any changes to how they do direct provision is the housing crisis. So the housing crisis at the moment closes down any conversations with the government about alternatives to direct provision or alternative models. Now there's been a couple of groups set up with the Department of Justice at the moment looking at whether or not the whole process is fit for purpose and that's good. So they're looking at it internally and and Mm -hmm. an independent group has been set up to look at the model of direct provision. But at the moment, the way they do it doesn't allow them to lay the groundwork. And that's very problematic because you need to be laying groundwork and having conversations two months in advance and preparing communities for the fact that something's going to change, but dealing with the disinformation as well. And even the disinformation is uh, the next step, isn't it? Uh, Because no matter how well you lay uh, the groundwork, uh, as things stand in this country and given the national mindset, if you like, you can take it that there will be some negative response. There will be some sort of racist response, whether that's violent or otherwise and this brings about the need for new legislation for uh, laws uh, dealing with hate speech and hate crime. Yes, that's the, it's, a, it's a parallel conversation, but one I think that's very linked to it because what we see in Ireland, I suppose, is that we don't have uh, any landscape when it comes to legislation about racism and hate crime, you know. Um, we have very low levels of legislation when it comes to the Incitement of Hatred Acts of 1989, which, you know, everybody agrees is, is practically unusable. It doesn't, it doesn't deal with modern times. It doesn't deal with the type of instances that unfortunately are seen in public spaces, public transport. It doesn't deal with online issues. You know, it's very, very, um, it doesn't It doesn't fit the purpose at all. Um, now, at the moment, the government has just launched a consultation again around hate crime legislation, which is really positive. I think we're definitely going to see the introduction of hate crime legislation in Ireland next year. And that is not, you know, what people will push back in it and say, it's about stifling my freedom of speech. It's not about stifling freedom of speech. It's stifling and targeting and dealing with instances of targeted harassment, intimidation, violence, um, whether it be online, whether it be in a public space, whether it be somebody getting uh, attacked in their home. These things are happening, unfortunately, and the racial element of it is not being recorded, it's not being dealt with, and we have no data then with which to work. So we can't plan around these things because we're not actually laying a groundwork underneath it of legislation and data gathering to actually deal with it. And we need a deterrent as well. We need to be able to say to people, if you racially abuse somebody on a bus, um, it's going to be dealt with. In the UK, they have things like um, racially motivated public order issues. Um, which 
which gather this type of incident. They give it. They give the police some way of dealing with it that actually reflects the fact that this is a highly racially motivated incident, and we need that here. So I'm, I'm very hopeful that we will see that come in, um, and I think it's very necessary because you know we don't want to be reacting to these things. We want to be planning for them. Okay, Brian, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us. Thank you. Brian Cloran is CEO of the Immigrant Council of Ireland. The Michael Reed Show. Now, it was on uh, the 14th of May 2018 when two 13-year-old boys killed a little 14-year-old girl. The boys, now aged 15, were in the Central Criminal Court yesterday for the sentencing hearing into the murder of Anna Crigel and they heard as we heard earlier what her mother Geraldine had to say about life for the family since they took their daughter's life not even an existence and how every every family occasion without her is entrenched with pain and sorrow how the family had brought her to a leafy suburb a country village believing it was a safe place for Anna but that has been destroyed because of what they do she said we can't look at teenage boys in the same way ever again and that we lie awake at night thinking about the fear she felt when she realised she was going to be killed we pace the house at night agonising about the torture she went through the horrendous pain she suffered the sadistic violation of her beautiful body and innocent body to think that she was left to rot in that squalid hellhole for over three days it is unbearable it is inhumane how do you come to terms with that well let's talk about this with uh, Professor Patricia Casey, who is a consultant psychiatrist at the Matter Hospital and a professor of psychiatry at UCD. And a very good morning to you, Patricia, and thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. I think everybody has struggled to come to terms with what happened in Lucan, Lucan in 2018, uh, and there is no logical explanation, uh, and it's certainly one that uh, the family uh, has found it impossible to come to terms with. Well, it's absolutely dreadful and my heart goes out to the parents i cannot begin to imagine how terrible it must be for them um, imagining what happened thinking about what happened to to their gorgeous daughter and and so they they are absolutely bereft and despairing and and utterly devastated and um there are no other words for it um whether people ever get over this sort of tragedy is is difficult to under, to to imagine mm-hmm. that anybody can get over it that that one can stop crying about it and get joy from some joy from life again uh, so i don't know what the future holds for them um but there there is no doubt but that they're loving parents and if that's and they they were loving parents they will go on loving their daughter even though she's no longer with them in this world at any rate and hopefully that will give them some strength knowing that but it's a horrendously difficult time mm. for them yeah and she spoke in the highest possible terms about what you would only imagine to be a wonderful beautiful little girl but also about the horror of knowing what happened to her uh, and that was spelled out to some degree by the prosecution barrister yesterday who spoke about some of uh, the psychological assessment reports uh, that have uh, taken place since the boys were found guilty in June of last year. They've been interviewed over again by psychologists and psychiatrists and Boy A described various actions uh, in those interviews including a headlock a chokehold, kicking, hitting Anna with a stick and using a block which he either threw at her 
or hit off her head three times. I mean, they're terrible details. Absolutely, absolutely awful details. And um, I can imagine, and I think any parent who loses a child will think about what they, or any family member, in fact, will think about what did they suffer as it was happening. But to have to go through that in your own mind about a young girl uh, is, is, is very tormenting indeed. Um, and and but it, but it's a natural human reaction, um, you know. When we talk about death, we we ask, you know, did he or she have a peaceful death? Was it a, was it a, mm. we talk about the concept of a good death? Um, but this certainly does not, by any stretch of the imagination, meet a good death. And they're the mm. images that will will go round and round in in parent in their parents in her parents minds um, for, for the rest of their life. Uh, and Geraldine Crejal said she lies awake at night, wondering about the fear that little Anna felt when she realised she was going to be killed. Yes, I mean that's, uh, that, that's mm. absolutely, mm. absolutely right. She's going to empathise and uh, she's uh, trying to enter her daughter's world during those minutes or however long the, 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 the assault lasted, during those minutes or hours um she's of course going to try and enter the world of her daughter and you can only imagine how painful that is because of course having heard from the boys what they've said it's not her imagination anymore it's not Geraldine's imagination as Mm. to what has happened she has actually heard Mm. what happened and she knows in reality Mm. what happened that you know it it Mm. wasn't a sudden a sudden fast death um, which is is uh, what uh, is is the best that one could hope for in tragic circumstances like that. It was it was slow and agonising. And as disturbing as you or I might find those details, I don't know if we can ever imagine how her mother would feel hearing the detail of how little Anna died. Now, boy A, who made those admissions, said he, he didn't sexually uh, assault Anna. Uh, but what... That goes on in the mind of a person because the court was also told, following on from the psychological assessments, that there was no evidence that boy A suffered from any personality disorder or mental illness which might explain his actions. Mm. Well, there's a thing called evil um, and, and that might explain some of it. Um, you know, people who otherwise seem quite normal can sometimes do terrible things Although with 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 a child of that age, a teenager, one would expect that there would be um, that there would be something going on in their minds by way of personality disorder, if not um, major mental illness like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. The thing is, though, you know, people, it, it, young people, have role models, and if the role models that these boys were exposed to, not necessarily from their parents, but perhaps through the internet and through through watching violence on, online, um, they could easily seek to emulate it. So it may be, well be something like that, but I would have to say that it is unusual um, and, and I, didn't, I didn't hear that report, I didn't see that report and I'm not a child psychiatrist mm. but I would think it is unusual for um, any any children or teenagers who engage in that level of violence not to have some kind of of mental um disorder in the background i'm thinking in particular of the the two boys who murdered um um jamie bulger mm. many many years in ago probably yeah. 20 mm. odd years ago 25 mm. odd years mm. ago um and one of them certainly has turned out to be an, and he was the leader as it were on that day um of the two um 
and John Venables, he has turned out to um, have a very checkered and problematic um, career indeed that has that has taken him back back to prison on many occasions. Mm. Uh, there's a, a lesson perhaps for all of us uh, in terms of uh, child protection uh, because uh, you talk a- about evil but surely every child is born good and something happens whether that's what they see on the internet yeah. or uh, they're mimicking somebody else's behaviour that they've seen uh, but there is a, a question of protecting children so that their minds don't become distorted like this. Oh, absolutely, absolutely and, and that is I don't know anything about these boys mm. and so I wouldn't presume to make any judgments about their families or their backgrounds but it is imperative that, 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 we, that we are careful about pornography and about, about violence on, on, online and indeed on screen and I become increasingly concerned when if you now speak about the dangers of pornography you're, you're labelled as a religious fundamentalist um, I think we, we have to remember that pornography can take, you know, is, is, is often very violent and, um, and exposure to it is highly damaging, particularly for young minds, because the brain is developing all the time and it's not fully developed in, in, in girls until about 19, 18, 19 and boys into their mid-20s. So you've got a developing brain exposed to images that are, are very um, aggressive, violent and, and, and sexualized and, and that is going to affect brain development and people's understanding of the world and you know all of these things do come partly from our genes mm. and our background and how we're brought up but also from our brain and how our brain has developed. Okay well uh, obviously, there was a, a problem uh, there. Uh, very, very, very disturbing. Uh, I'm sure uh, everybody will uh, agree. But uh, our time has run out. Patricia, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, to talk to us about thank that. Uh, that's uh, Professor Patricia Casey, who's a consultant psychiatrist in uh, the matter and uh, professor of psychiatry at UCD. Brings our programme to its conclusion today. Our time has run out. Thanks to Maggie and Chris. And God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss.